Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we take a closer look at journalism. In particular, how news outlets cover the 2020 presidential campaign, including the local and national elections, the candidates, and the communities. What worked? Where were journalists challenged? And where does the field of journalism go from here? My guests are Martin G. Reynolds, co-executive director for the Robert C. Maynard Institute for Journalism Education, and Lila LaHood, publisher of the San Francisco Public Press and board member of the Society of Professional Journalists, Northern California chapter. We're two days out from the uh, election day, and we're still in the midst of it all, waiting for final results and things are being tallied. As people who are observers of journalism and doers of journalism, in the journalism that you've consumed over just the past few days, how do you think the coverage has been going? Martin, let me go ahead and start with you. First, I want to say is that I have been really pleased with the way in which the networks have been approaching the vote tally. Uh, I read a story just before the election that really went through and unpacked how uh, the networks were planning to focus on really preparing viewers to not have a decision the night of, right? We've all been really conditioned over the last, I don't know how many election cycles at this point, for elections to be called and candidates to concede. And of course, the ballots aren't even close to being counted yet. Even Fox, to a great extent, has even been pretty careful in uh, letting folks know that vote tallies are going to come later. So I certainly have enjoyed that and appreciated uh, the re-emphasis on the part of uh, particularly John King on CNN, who I think has done an excellent job, same with Steve Kornacki. The other part that I think that has been interesting has been the unpacking of the Latino vote, particularly in Florida. We already knew that the Latino vote wasn't a monolith to begin with, but we really got a chance to see that this time particularly as it relates to Miami-Dade County, Cuban-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, Puerto Ricans, a number of stories that have unpacked why it is that the Democrats didn't do so well and why Republicans did better and what were the social fault lines that were at play. So overall, I've been I've been pleased with the tenor, the tone. I've also appreciated that journalists have finally grown some teeth after four years of really explicitly articulating when the president, uh, you know, saying we're claiming states uh, for purposes of electoral, I don't even know what he was talking about, but basically saying that's not how it works, that's ridiculous. And being Jake Tapper's face has been perfectly delicious the entire time of him just saying that's not true. To me, it's one of the problems that journalists have, and we can touch on this later as we talk about objectivity or where do we go from here, is this this notion of staying so removed that you're unwilling to say something is not accurate or not true and sort of utilizing language that is softening when something is not factual. And so I think finally it's taken so much time and I think we've done a great disservice to society and to our credibility by seeking to not be so specific and strident. I agree with you. I loved seeing the qualifiers. You know, the president has falsely claimed that and even pointing it and Twitter is marking these as false because they are. And I have appreciated that coverage. Lila, let me ask you what you've been consuming and observing and watching. How do you think journalists have done? My approach has been a little bit different. Martin, it sounds like you've been watching a lot of the television response. 
I think I've been focused more on my, my computer and conversations with other people. In fact, I may be having more conversations with friends about the election than I ever have in the past. And these conversations are coming at me. It's very interesting. So on uh, election night, I was with a group of friends on Zoom and we were all watching, a couple of people were watching television. I was watching the New York Times page. Uh, somebody else was checking in on what's Fox News saying. And we were having a conversation with each other and then sharing things in the chat. I'm also experiencing this process collectively with friends, mostly via text, some email and some Zoom gatherings. Um, but we're sharing information with each other and sharing our feelings and our anxieties and all of that. Uh, and I feel that just broadens the exposure. One, it, it broadens connection. And two, it broadens exposure to diverse sources, hopefully, um, though we are certainly sticking to sources that are credible. Personally, I love the data visualizations. And to me, they just keep getting better and better every year, just getting beyond the map of red and blue states. I mean, you know, a simple departure from that is, you know, the New York Times map that has the representation of the electoral votes, which displays the states very differently, but I think makes it easier for you to wrap your head around what does it mean if this state goes this way or the state goes that way. So I think I've been focusing a lot of attention on that. And then again, in terms of interacting with other people around this conversation, I am in several WhatsApp group chats where, again, people are having these conversations and sharing you know, links from different news organizations uh, got in onto our work Zoom on Wednesday morning and everybody else was saying the same thing. It's like we have these multiple conversations going on with people in our lives and they're using, you know, information from all of these dif different sources. And it's it's a much more engaging discussion than I think we've had in the past, even though we had access to some of these tools before. I feel like perhaps because of the pandemic and because of people's comfort level with these various tools that they're using them more elaborately. I also love the cartogram maps that show the states as representations of electoral votes. That's my favorite. So journalists are doing a lot of things well as far as finally um, pushing back on falsities very explicitly, pulling data visualizations out that helped us understand things better. And I think also the idea of um, being restrained, the restraint that was very explicitly telegraphed, like we're going to be restrained, this takes a while, this is what's going on in each state and why, uh, was new. As I was watching CNN, I think it was last night, you know, like 2 a.m., of course, because of course I'm not stopping. Uh, I think Chris Cuomo said, is he pulling ahead? And the, the gentleman with Chris was like, well, actually, the votes are already there. They're just sitting there. No one's pulling ahead. They're just counting. But then even he couldn't help himself because that horse race language is so ingrained. But they were trying really hard and trying to call it out. So I appreciated that. What do you think journalists could have done better, either over the past few days or over the course of leading up to the moment, uh, the past few years? What could journalists have done better to help the populace navigate all of this? I mean, I think there's a lot that could have been done rather than just sort of thinking about what they could do leading up to the election, because I think that, again, sort of reemphasizes sort of the moment and the urgency piece, which I don't necessarily think are what's really at play here. I mean, what's really at play is this long erosion of public trust in major institutions, and we in the media are part of that. Also, the lack of not just diversity in news organizations, but belonging in news organizations. One of the things we're talking a lot about with the Maynard Institute is moving past this conversation around diversity and actually moving past diversity, moving even past DEI, because diversity, equity, inclusion. Inclusion to me is like tolerance. 
Like you tolerate a fly flying around, but you really don't want it there. Same thing, right? You can be in a news organization, but your perspective isn't really wanted. So I think this notion of belonging so that news organizations themselves have deeper relationships to the communities that they're covering. And I think we have contributed, I mean, social media has as well, to the polarization of our society and this lack of collective understanding, not that there has ever really been a shared narrative, but there are so many narratives now and largely because as it relates to mainstream news organizations, people have turned away and begun to sort of enjoy and be pulled into particular areas of understanding or voice outlets that speak to them because they don't see themselves reflected. And if you look at the electoral map now and you look at the, the clear split of the electorate, we have contributed to this division. It's not all on us, but a lot of it is on us. And so I think there needs to be ongoing soul searching about how is journalism going to fix the sins that were laid out in the Kerner Commission report that talked about the lack of diversity and the ramifications for society. Because when people don't see themselves reflected, then they don't trust what they see. And if they don't trust what they see, how can they make decisions for themselves so we are not actually being in service in a way that we need to be, that society needs us to be. But we need to be intentional and we need to at least be real about what role we have played and where we need to get better. Journalists definitely were not and ha we have not done the best job of talking to everybody in the community and really hearing from everybody in the community. And then I also think that those those weaknesses or those challenges have been exploited by corporations who've bought up journalism. The New York Times article from a week or two ago about as local journalism outlets uh, close, that this network of basically PR firms fronting as journalism organizations have sort of filled the gap. And because these news outlets, one, were, were losing trust and two, uh, were bought up by by hedge funds and other corporations. And the lack of trust was leading to lower lower subscription rates. Well, let's go ahead and put these sort of PR focused outlets in that purport to be putting news out and then that information or misinformation or disinformation becomes what feels like news to those communities and then we're living in different worlds and that's a, you know a massive problem I mean, you're right that's not the election it certainly affected our the election and our politics but that's affecting us as a society it's the larger ecosystem and that's why you know an outlet like the san francisco public press is so critical because it's focusing so explicitly on the community and is being led by folks with high levels of integrity and really care about the journalism that's being produced. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. You know, Gina, you had asked, what could journalists have done better? I mean, right now, we're, this is about a national issue. But when it comes down to it, it really, it is all about trust. You know, I think we always do our best when we, we stay focused. Um, you know, we do have to report what the president says and the news that comes out of the administration, but everyone doesn't have to repeat it in the same way. And I think some of the best journalism is done, you know, when journalists focus on what are the stories that really matter. And yes, like here are the words that are coming out about this issue, but what is the issue really about? And focusing on that and how it affects people, um, what is really changing and not getting caught up in the drama because those who are creating drama have reason to create drama because it helps to move forward a particular point of view. But what is really happening and how how do these issues affect, you know, real people 
in communities nationwide. Yes. In fact, we saw that play out just two days after Election Day when Donald Trump came on to make claims about election fraud and all kinds of other things. All of the major networks cut away. They cut away from the live speech because they deemed it too full of falsehoods. And instead, they spent their time fact-checking it and contextualizing and informing audiences about all of the processes that are in place and how they work. And to me, that is covering a news conference in a way that's helpful to audiences, not just letting it run without comment. Uh, I wish they'd done that kind of thing more all along. And Martin, I think, as you said, this can help build audience trust, but it's a long process. Getting to trust. I've dedicated my life to doing local nonprofit news. There have always been issues of, you know, do we trust the media or not? Um, There have been a lot of attacks. And I think local news organizations can help to repair some of that. You know, national organizations have brand identity and visibility. But in some ways, I think local organizations are better at establishing trust um, because we're more accessible. People can, they can contact us. They know us. They might, you know, pass us in the grocery store and, you know, masks or not, there's, there's some familiarity. You know, also when people are reading about local issues, they often have a little more information. They're not trusting somebody to bring them all of the information. They have a, a base of knowledge. And what we're doing is, you know, adding to that But I think they feel more capable of, you know, validating and verifying what we're talking about. So it's easier to establish trust. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about journalism, the election, and covering communities with Martin G. Reynolds, co-executive director of the Maynard Institute, and Lila LaHood, publisher of the San Francisco Public Press. Every news story is actually a local news story. What's going on in Maricopa County in Arizona right now, that's a local news story that happens to be being covered nationally. You know, it's like what's going on in Philadelphia, what's going on in, in, in Georgia. That, those are all local stories. Yeah, CNN may have swooped in to also cover it because it's a big story, but those local journalists are the ones who have the contacts, who know everybody, and who are trying to get the information out. That's where thinking about building trust and thinking about reaching out to the local communities and covering what matters to the local communities. And that's where I think the San Francisco Public Press does such a good job because it's thinking about what, um, Martin, you said earlier, service. What exactly is our goal here? And and I, I wonder if sometimes we lose sight of that in the churn of daily news and the churn of getting the stories out. What exactly is the point here? What are we doing? We're trying to serve. We're trying to inform. We're trying to give people the information they need to uh, make good decisions about their communities or about their elected officials or whatever it is. Nonprofit organizations have also, in addition to these, you know, PR firms, I think nonprofit news organizations have risen up to try to fill these gaps. The the Maynard Institute, let's let's talk about what your your work, Martin, is is also doing some incredible work to try to bring diverse perspectives into the newsroom and to remind the news organizations of the importance of actually listening and hearing and um, going beyond basic inclusion. This whole pandemic and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and then sort of the brief slowing down and then collective viewing and trauma of of this man getting the life pressed out of him and the egregious nature of the police shooting a woman, um, you know, a uh, an essential worker, a, you know, a first responder in her home, uh, really all of a sudden sort of captivated uh, the nation. And, and what we saw following these protests, there were these own insurrections, if you will, in journalism organizations calling for racial justice. There's a ton of healing that actually needs to go on with people of color, with white folks that is happening in, in other areas, but that journalists don't necessarily 
think that, or I don't know if they think that they need, it needs to happen with them. But I think as we go into these news organizations, trains journalists of color, trains journalists of all backgrounds to think how these social fault lines impact perception and therefore their journalistic choices. Like rather than just sort of a conversation about diversity, what can we do better? We want to actually have a conversation about, okay, so what's your newsroom culture like? You know, what is your coverage like? Who have you been for for the community? What is your what is what is the institution and what does the institution need to be? Who has it served? Who has it harmed? Because people talk about hiring, retention, all of these indicators, but those are mere indicators of a deeper issue. And so we want to help news organizations go from a conversation about diversity to creating institutions of belonging in service of all of us. And that can only serve us better as an entire community. You hit upon a couple of things that resonated with me. I wrote an article recently for Pointer on this concept of bias versus objectivity. And objectivity was meant to be a method for gathering news. But it's that, as you say, it's it's what we bring to the table, our, our experiences in society that inform, as you say, how we cover news and what we choose to cover. I have to give credit to Keith Olbermann, but I feel like I also thought of it, um, that it, when we think of Edward R. Murrow and we think of Walter Cronkite, the moments we remember aren't moments of objectivity. They're moments when they took a stand. They're moments when they, they were activists in a way, like Walter Cronkite when he talked about Vietnam and Edward R. Murrow when he took on Joseph McCarthy. That was great journalism, you know what I mean? That was great journalism, but it wasn't objective. Well, to your point about they made a stand, I mean, they, they made a stand based on the preponderance of evidence, right? So at some point, enough had occurred for them to finally say, you know, have you no decency, sir? Because this constant, well, this side said that, this side said this, and then, and and sometimes we don't even fill in the blanks of, well, this is actually true. At some point, when you have enough evidence, everything is an objective. That's like doing a 12-inch story about the Nazis and giving them six inches. Like, like that balance is, it's false because everything isn't balanced. Like at some point, you have to make a determination as a journalist based on data and information, and you're actually doing a disservice to your readership, viewership, listenership, if you don't do that. Absolutely. And I think we've seen the consequences of that, and now this effort to try to start to have a reckoning. Lila, your thoughts on this? I'm chiefly focused on local news and, and you know reflecting the community. And as Martin points out, we all can do a better job making sure that our newsroom reflects the community, that we're we're addressing issues that affect the wide range of people who live in San Francisco. But even when we do that, there's a little bit of a disconnect because San Francisco is San Francisco and it's in the Bay Area. And the way we talk about particular issues here, you know, may resonate with people, people who live here and care about this place. But I think there can still be a disconnect with what's going on in the rest of the country. We should not be making assumptions about, about groups of people at all. We need to ask people what they care about, what their fears are. Talking about elections, you know, we again, we have focused on, you know, the San Francisco measures, but when you look at the state level propositions and why a particular proposition might get a lot of support in one area and, and not in others, why? And it's because, you know, people do have different priorities or the way they read, you know, these proposals and how they're going to be affected by them. It's a very different experience. And we're not going to understand what's happening if we just go, you know, based on the feelings and thoughts of the people right in our immediate area, I think we need to reach out, reach out farther to, to really 
really understand what's happening here. Right. And maybe it's not a bias, but a blind spot. Yes. Blind spot. That's the perfect word. There's the, the issue that, that, you know, that we see that glaringly obvious to us. People talk about homeless people and they don't talk to homeless people about their experience. And it's like, how about, so, you know, there are all these assumptions. Just this week, someone said to me, well, you know, homeless people come here because of our services. And I'm like, hang on, hang on. The city does these surveys. They know that the vast majority of people who are homeless in San Francisco previously had housing in San Francisco. We all, we all make assumptions and have blind spots or think we know right. how that person got into that, got into that spot. Right. And as soon as we ask, a lot of organizations locally did a beautiful job discussing the propositions and talking and trying to break them down. Not, not, I mean, there's certainly problems, but I really do think that there was an intelligent, nuanced discussion of many of the propositions. And, and I appreciated that. Anyway, where do we go from here? So we're in this moment with regard to national news coverage or local coverage that becomes national. Many outlets have started to call out stuff that's that's blatantly false. And then locally, we're grappling with these issues of diversity, issues of making sure we're actually speaking to the communities that we're covering, trying to figure out what our blind spots are and push through those. Where can we go from here realistically and, and critically to make sure we're doing a, a good job at ensuring that democracy is, is safe? First and foremost, I think there isn't a quick fix to this really systemic uh, challenge we're facing as an industry and as a country. So I think first and foremost, there has to be a, a long game approach and a view that focusing on this at a structural level is critical. I do think that there are some <laughs> principles that folks can undertake. For instance, adopting community organizing principles as it relates to building trust. So news organizations have engagement editors, but often those engagement editors are focusing on existing audiences and it's also digital, virtual, and eventually, hopefully we'll get out of this and be able to get back into communities. There has to be an understanding that building relationships is how you build trust. People have to know you. I get somewhat concerned about this, particularly as it relates to mainstream news organizations because of the lack of capacity to build these relationships and even to have the time to do it. So I'm worried about that. I think a place like San Francisco Public Press has the capacity, might not might need more capacity, but it's coming at it from a much more granular relationship sort of level. So I think building also relationships with ethnic media and mainstream news organizations, you know, are there more collaborations that can take place that bring sort of the credibility that ethnic journalists have with their community, right? They are of community, whereas news organizations traditionally are sort of, we look at community. There has to actually be a level of care, intentionality, and understanding the harm that has been committed. So in some of these communities, there is a deficit of trust. It's not just a letter or there's never been trust. This manifests itself in the conversation around, you know, misinformation, disinformation, and voter fraud, for instance, as an example. And one thing that just really stands out to me about why I worry so much about what has happened in our larger discourse is because this whole voter fraud narrative, like it wasn't a thing before, and now it has become one. And even though so many stories come out, like I saw a story in Reuters the other day that talked about this professor, Justin Levitt, who's a law professor at Loyola School who tracks voter fraud cases. And out of um, 1 billion ballots cast between 
2000 and 2014 across the country, there were only 31 impersonation incidents. Okay, another example was um, five states have, which have been holding their elections primarily by mail had docked almost no cases of cheating and Oregon had sent out more than 100 million mail ballots since 2000 and reported only a dozen cases of proven fraud. But if you watch, you know, the president and, and how certain groups who perhaps follow him, they, you would think that there is rampant fraud. So how has this happened? And why is information that is clearly able to be presented not being believed by people? What has occurred? So I worry about that uh, deeply. Misinformation is somewhat of a byproduct of this lack of trust. Uh, and as people didn't see themselves in news or they started to be skeptical about the information that they were getting because it didn't make sense to their own lives, I think that did send people out to search for their own alternative sources. And misinformation really filled that void. So we've got an uphill battle there. I don't know if journalists can solve that heavy lift on their own, but because people don't trust journalists, because people haven't trusted their local outlet, they are turning more willingly to this information. And that is something we have to think about. Lila, your thoughts? Misinformation, it's, re it's really tough. How do you fight it, especially when things keep getting repeated and repeated? And because of the repetition, they, they gain salience, even though there's nothing behind it. For those of us working on the on, on a local level, whatever trust we've established, if we can use that to focus on, on facts and information and help people to verify and dispel things that, that we know to be, to be false, I, I think we can play that role. What do you want from your audience? I mean, our audience really is news organizations and journalists. And so what I want from them, like when you're in therapy, like if you don't know you've got a problem, that's a problem. And, and I think news organizations do understand they have a problem, but I don't know that if CEOs of large media corporations get it to the extent that they need to, I think people below them do, but I think at, at whatever level where the rubber can meet the road, at least to a certain degree, I need news organizations, journalists to be real about the harm that's been committed. Often journalists think because they are mission driven and are progressive that they don't uh, have biases or perpetuate systemic racism through microaggressions or the, the way these systems continue. So first and foremost, be real about what's happening. And secondarily, look at this as an opportunity. There is a need for new revenue models, greater trust, relationships with news organizations. Like there are really important things that need to happen. What I need folks to get behind is this notion of repair, restore, and recreate. If we can do that, begin to do that, chip away at that ever so slowly, and I think Lila's so on point about the notion that the, where this can happen is at the local level, then we can begin to slowly recreate something new, a new, a new journalistic uh, relationship with communities, and particularly communities that have been underserved or ha haven't been viewed as the customer. As our nation grapples with this reckoning, we have to meet the moment as journalists in a journalistic uh, industry uh, in order to serve them and to serve our society. I think about, you know, oh yeah, we our organization's got a problem, but not me. No, yes, you, oh yeah. Right. yeah we all got problems, we all, well, yeah. come on. It's all of us. Stop. Yeah.
Lila, um, what do you want from your audience? We can say what we want from our audience, but in order to get that, we need to give our audience more. And I wish we had more reporters, but even with our limited staff, we want to do more reaching out to the community. And again, you know, with the pandemic, it makes things challenging. It's easy enough to say, well, just tell us what's going on. Tell us what you want. But I think we need to make people feel more welcome to have those conversations with us. So we need to go out into neighborhoods, you know, different ethnic communities and communities of color that maybe don't feel welcome to just tell us what they think. I think we need to, we need to go and talk to people not when we're looking for a quote or a response to a particular story, but to have conversations that are more ongoing and establish trust. And so that we're listening to them, like what's going on, what matters to you. And, you know, because we're small, we can't promise to cover everything that is brought up. But I think the more we know about what is happening, we will do better journalism. We'll understand better what's going on and what people are concerned about. And, and I hope that we will be more responsive and we're, we are trying to address things that, that matter to them and that they care about. Thank you to my guests. Martin G. Reynolds, co-executive director of the Robert C. Maynard Institute for Journalism Education, and Lila LaHood, publisher of the San Francisco Public Press and a board member of the Society of Professional Journalists in Northern California chapter. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.